Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up our text back in Genesis 41. We are discussing this section that goes from 37 down through the end of the chapter, verse 57 talking about Joseph's transition from poverty to prominence and the Lord's hand, obviously, in that. In verses 37 to 45, we looked at the idea that God's reward may be in proportion to one's trials. Joseph had already been through so much, being uh, sold as a slave, taken away into captivity, serving as, as a slave, indentured servitude in Potiphar's house, then unjustly accused, thrown into prison, forgotten about. And now he has finally come out of that and the reward in his life rising to the place of second in command in all of Egypt really seems to be commensurate with the, uh, the degree to which he suffered and the trials that he had already passed through. And so it's not an ironclad thing, but God's reward may be in proportion to one's trials. And as we noted earlier, it might also exceed that as well. You you just don't know. But in Joseph's case, it does indefinitely meet up with that or even exceed. And it's incredible to, to watch that happen. And of course, God's hand is behind all of that. Now we're going to pick up the text here in verse 46. And we read this, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So in these verses, verses 46 to 52, we learn this principle that God's servants must continue to live uprightly, even in newfound positions of power. One could be tempted to be prideful after such an exaltation, but Joseph kept his head about him, and that's important. Again, you know, most circumstances are out of our control. There are some things, well, I shouldn't say most. Uh, From a sovereign standpoint, obviously the Lord is ordering all those things. There are some things we can do to prepare, but again, we, we just don't know all that's coming into our life. And so there's only so much you can do. What you can do is you can be faithful to God no matter what, or you can at least purpose in your heart to do that. And the difficult thing, the tricky thing is, is that at times, Uh, When our life seems to be just full of prosper and blessing, uh, our life seems to prosper and it's just full of blessing materially, 
at those times, those are not the times that we should abandon God. Those are the times that we should be all the more thankful and, and grateful in our hearts for the things that God is doing. And that's when we find it's an interesting thing to, to just observe is that even in, with Christians in the church today, that they look, they, they especially call out to God during times of trial and affliction. Now, of course we should, right? Uh, if, if you have just come into some bad news about health or, you know, the status of a loved one, uh, then of course we should pray and we do. But we don't just want to go to the Lord in times of trouble and times of affliction. Uh, we want to make sure that we are always walking with the Lord and even in times of blessing. And that is a blessing for us is to watch Joseph not allow this to go to his head. And it's instructive to us when you are in a position where you have received much blessing and an abundance from the Lord, make sure that you continue uh, to give him the glory, give him the credit, give him the praises to his name, and continue to cultivate your relationship with him. God's servants must continue to live uprightly, even in newfound positions of power. Now, he had 13 years of trials. Okay, so that that is how much affliction he has experienced up to this point. How do we know? Well, in Genesis 37, verse 2, we are told that he was 17 years old when he was taken from the land. And this finally comes to an end, and he begins this service to Pharaoh as the second in the land, the text tells us in verse 46, at 30 years old. So you do the math, he has 13 years of imprisonment uh, and servitude as a slave. Uh, it's, it's been a rough life. But notice also, I mean, you know, we're not, there's nothing like super deep in, in this as far as exegetical nuggets and things like this, but just from an observation standpoint, you know, we can do the math, we can, you know, say that he was suffering for 13 years, which he was, but there's another thing that happens here. And namely it's this, that he does what he says he will do. Okay. He's 13, he's 30 years old when he enters into the service of Pharaoh, the king. And he went out from the presence of Pharaoh and keep in mind, he's you know, dressed the way that he was. He's got the signet ring. He's wearing the fine clothing and the jewelry and riding in the second chariot, uh, all those things. He goes out from his presence and he goes throughout all the land of Egypt to do what? To do exactly what he said that he would do. Verse 47, during the seven plentiful years that the earth produced, what did he do? Verse 48, he gathered up all the food, just like he said. Now I say that because... We live in a day and age when we are surrounded by politicians. That's almost like a bad word anymore. And the only reason is because of their reputation. And there may be a, a one or two that are good, but their reputation for decades now that has preceded them, at least in this country, is that they're absolutely corrupt and, you know, almost worthless. I, I won't say that. Uh, I say that sort of tongue in cheek. And like I said, there are some exceptions, but by and large, to be a politician is to be somebody who can be bought off, can be bribed, uh, who doesn't follow through on their promises and their words. And they're doing that to get to positions of power. Well, Joseph is already in that position. He didn't have to go out and run a campaign. He wasn't elected. He was appointed. And one could simply say, well, now that he's there, he could just do whatever he wants. I mean, he's second in command. But the fact is, is that Joseph feared the Lord. 
He knew that this was coming. He believed what God had said in his word, even though it was years away. And it's a good reminder for us. You know, God doesn't give us these specific timelines for our lives anymore, right? We have general principles. I think that, you know, when we, we read in the Psalms, the, the span of man's life is 70 years or if by strength, 80. You know, we, we kind of have general principles for those sorts of things. But God hasn't told us, you know, I'm going to do this in five years time or in seven years, look out for this. We, we don't have those kind of time frames. And, and quite honestly, this is a really interesting thing. If we did, would we actually believe it? Uh, th- that's a long time. Seven years is a long time uh, to, to think about that. We might get tired and say, well, that was a lot of years ago. And I haven't seen any evidence that would suggest that there's great calamity coming right around the corner, especially imagine if you're in year six or, or maybe you're in year seven and you're still, the, the land is producing plentifully that year. And it's like, wow, you know, is there really calamity coming next year? I mean, is it going to be that bad where we're not going to get any food at all next year? You might be tempted after seven years to just excuse that away. But the fact that Joseph does what he said is not so much a testimony uh, and, and a testament to, you know, that he fears Sparrow necessarily. It's the fact, and it bears witness to his relationship with God and his faith in God and what God had revealed. That is more what is in view here than anything else. So the fact that he goes and does this and doesn't just do it for a year and pats himself on the back, but does it every year. Uh, all the way up. And, and we're told here in this little section that he goes right up until uh, the year before, right? And so we see this the, before the year of the famine came. So this is year seven of the abundance. This is when his two sons are born to him, Manasseh and Ephraim, which means that he had worked and labored according to his word all the way through to the final year. And he's also, we know, going to be the, the steward and the overseer of, of all of this during the famine as well. So he's faithful. He does what he says he will do. Now listen, when the Lord has blessed you and you have the opportunity to serve him in a position of blessing, keep serving him. Stay faithful. Uh, th- that's probably one of the most important lessons as we kind of work through the Joseph narrative is that you know, and we've said it before, we'll say it again, no matter where you find yourself, if you're in poverty or you're the prince of the land, you need to continue serving God and being faithful to him. And that means that you do what you say you will do. You do what God has appointed you to do no matter what. All right. So that's, that's a wonderful. And then we notice this, that the seven years of plenty, uh, they do occur just according to God's word. Might be tempting, right? When the land is producing so fruitfully to just live it up. But the fact of the matter is, is that God's people will always live in light of God's revelation. So we don't take advantage of that and say, well, here's my time to prosper and I'm just going to really, you know, live the, the high life right now. You know, that, that's not what he does. He lives in light of God's revelation, knowing what's coming. And he's a steward and he's living according to faith. And we see this, that God, uh, God brings blessing before another trial. 
Uh, and that's, that's the two sons. We already knew that the land was going to produce foods. So that's not the blessing. That's just the, the word of God. But he does bring blessing into Joseph's life with these two sons. And this is evidence of Joseph's enduring faith. You say, how is that? He was provided a wife by Pharaoh. Yes. But really, we see the evidence of his enduring faith in the names that he gives them. He gives them Hebrew names, even though we talked about in the previous episode, this whole idea that when Pharaoh exalted him, there was this Egyptianization process that he implements in Joseph's life by renaming Joseph and giving him an Egyptian wife. And, you know, he's really just expected to become an Egyptian for lack of a a better term there. And he's young. He's going to take up the language. And we know that later on when he encounters his brothers, they don't even recognize him. They're not expecting him. They're not looking for him, but he, he looks like an Egyptian. He doesn't look like they look. And clearly, uh, you know, he's learned language so well that they don't understand that he understands their language. Uh, and those are all things that kind of come into play. But has he abandoned his faith during this time? Not at all. So much so that seven years into this highly exalted position, when God gives him these two children, he gives them Hebrew names. And the text makes it very clear what they are. I mean, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. So we know that this word or this name Manasseh is going to sound similar to to this main verb here, to forget. And that's really what it, it means here. Uh, it's Hebrew. It sounds very similar to the Hebrew word making to forget. And so with uh, a son, and you think about that, a son is a sign of blessing. Children are life. That means that your family line can continue. All the hardship that he had endured, he knew that his brothers were out to kill him. He went from that into a place of indentured servitude, into prison, not knowing if he's going to live or die. 13 years of suffering, albeit with blessing, right? You know, he's over... The, the prison of Pharaoh's prison so that the, he has charge over the inmates that come in as well and the other prisoners. But the fact of the matter is it's still a very rough life, but now to be at a point where he is married, I mean, you're not going to get married in prison and, and things like that. He's married and he has children and he remembers. I mean, God has caused him to forget. It's a, it's a beautiful word picture here. And that's what that means. And again, it's Hebrew, so in his native tongue. And then the second son, Ephraim, uh, and notice what he says here, because God gave him a second son. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for, he says, God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, there's an interesting play in words here. Uh, Ephraim is, is very similar to this Hebrew word to make fruitful. Uh, but not just a play on words in that way, but uh, not only is he given him one, but two. So we see the two there, the twins, or not twins, but um, we, we, we don't know that they're twins. Two sons born in the last year, maybe they're Irish twins, not sure. However, the fact that it's not one, but two is definitely a sign of blessing. And that's what he's talking about, this fruitful aspect. But it's also noteworthy that this comes during the time of abundance, where the land is itself fruitful in the land of Egypt. And so there is that that reiteration of all the things that are going on during that time. So it's a very appropriate time for, uh, for that blessing to come into his life while the land is yielding its fruit 
then he uh, opens up the womb of his his wife so that she can bear him sons so that she can be fruitful and he can see that and enjoy that blessing. So that's, that's really interesting. And so we notice that the seven years of plenty start when he's 30. Uh, so now it's been 20 years since he was abducted and he has kept the faith. So where we're ending this little section here is seven years into that. He starts his service at 30. He's ending his service or he's, he's not ending his service, but he's ending the seven years of plenty at age 37. That puts him 20 years out. And at year 20, it's been 20 years since all of this hardship and pain has taken place in his family, God has now caused him to forget uh, and, and taken that away. Not, not that he will ever forget the things that have happened, but even more noteworthy is that in 20 years' time, he has kept the faith that whole time. That's just, it's very encouraging to me. I want to encourage you, no matter what you're going through, uh, to continue to stay faithful. All right. That brings us to verses 53 to 57, and that takes us out through the end of the chapter. Let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll just make a brief comment. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth." All right, in this narrative section here, verses 53 to 57, we learn this, that God's word will prevail, and only those who take it seriously might be spared. There are incredible implications to this, and applications even into the church age, which we'll get into here in a moment, but God's word will prevail, and only those who take it seriously might be spared. Uh, it's incredible what we see here in a microcosm with regard to, to what God's doing with Joseph and his family and the nation of Egypt during this time, but also, uh, the, like I said, the implications uh, for what, what, what we're facing and, and what is coming after the church age are, are pretty monumental as well. That's an application. All right, so after plenty comes the famine. This is just as God has said according to his word. Just go back and read that as Joseph interprets the dream for him. And it says these two dreams are one and the seven uh, the, the seven cows are seven years and seven ears are seven years. You have, you know, all that. So it's just as God had said. And he lived like that during the time of abundance that he believed that this was coming. And now it comes just according to God's word. The only people in, in all the earth, and by the way, the earth here, when we're talking about this, we're talking about the known world in that whole region. Does that mean that this famine was over the entire globe and in other continents that people couldn't even access? I, I'm not going to comment on that. It may mean that, but the fact is, is that people are not hopping in boats and, you know, trans-Pacific, trans-Atlantic uh, trips here uh, trying to, to come to Egypt to get food. Uh, so it's probably more the, the whole area around that. Anybody that was even remotely close to Egypt, they're all affected by this famine 
uh, and and to you know all the way up to modern day Turkey, all the way out to Iraq, Iran, uh, those places there, Saudi Arabia, uh, into Eastern Europe, all of that. Okay, so I'm willing to to concede that, but I'm I'm not so sure when you when you take it in its natural reading that it's, it's going to literally mean every square inch of earth and every single person. And again, this is one of those things where God has given us the ability to decipher things with, with language and understand how language works, which is why when we come to certain passages in the New Testament, we have to understand them in the similar context. When, for instance, we read in the Gospels that all the earth came out to hear Jesus, uh, the whole world came out to, to hear him preaching. Well, was it everybody? Uh, you know, was there were sick and invalid, there were house ridden people, and it was literally everybody again from other continents who'd made, you know, uh, great journeys that were weeks and months long by boat, uh, to, to come and see him. No, it probably meant everybody when he talks about that as a figure of speech to mean everybody in that region. And so this is a regional statement here. We know very practically that people become hungry during famine. <laughs> That's like kind of a just Captain Obvious moment right there. Uh, so we see that um, when all the people uh, of Egypt were famished, verse 55, they cried to Pharaoh. What does famished mean? Extreme hunger. Uh, there's just not enough food. Uh, to be famished is is related to the word famine. and And so we understand that there. Uh, that that's just a practical outcome. Food is scarce. We're going to have to change uh, things in our life. And Pharaoh's command holds true. He had put Joseph in charge. He says, go to Joseph. And then Joseph orders them accordingly. And then we see that the famine has spread throughout all the world. This is obviously, and and take what I just said here, uh, I think it's regional. It is spread this is all part of God's plan to save one family in particular and to bring them into a place uh, for a specific time. Now, we said the principle here is that God's word will prevail and only those who take it seriously might be spared. The only person who knew anything about this was Joseph. His brothers don't know. His dad doesn't know. Pharaoh didn't know what it meant. He's told by Joseph and a God-fearer what it means. And Pharaoh wisely decides, because God has moved his heart, uh, to listen to Joseph and say, okay, you have, uh, you've got a lot of wisdom here. We're going to go ahead and act on that. And I'm going to put you in charge of that. But it's only the person who actually believed that because what God has said will happen. Now here's a practical application. God has told us what is coming for the future of this world. We now live in a day and age that is very remarkably similar to what we read in second Peter chapter three, where we have scoffers and mockers, people who mock the promise of his coming saying, where is the promise of his return? Have not things always gone on the way that they have since the very beginning? And of course, Peter corrects them under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You forget in the days of Noah, you know, and then destruction came upon them. But the fact of the matter is, is we're not just looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal state. And the next thing on the timeline is not the great white throne judgment. Jesus warned over and over and over of a coming day of God's wrath. And that is something that's very 
that, that even people within the church have started to get away from. Think about what, I think it was John the Baptist who said to the Pharisees, who, you know, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the, the, the day of God's wrath or the wrath of, that's coming? I'm paraphrasing. I don't have it exactly <laughs> memorized. Uh, but the point is, is he talks about his coming day of wrath. The great white throne judgment is not an outpouring of wrath. That is, that is judgment. Uh, that is a day when people are summarily judged and they're judged simply. I don't think there's a whole lot of emotion at the great white throne judgment. Go back and read that in, in Revelation chapter 20. It says, you know, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. The earth gave up the dead which were in it, right? All the dead stand before God. We understand here at the great white throne judgment, my understanding of it, and uh, most people are that it's, there's no believer that's part of that. Okay, so you aren't going to, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're not going to be at that judgment. But the dead are standing there. There's not chaos. There's not revolt there. There's, there's nothing. There's no uprising. And it says, and books were brought out, and another book was open, and it was, you know, and if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, he was cast in the lake of fire. That's all it says there. That's, that's not... You know, somebody might say, well, to be cast in like a fire is to, to endure the wrath. Yes, but there is, uh, there is, and the Bible speaks of it over and over and over in the New Testament. And there are, uh, there's obvious allusions to it in the old of the a coming day where God's wrath will be poured out on the earth. All that to say the great white throne judgment is not him pouring out his wrath on the earth. That is, you know, maybe individual wrath as you go into the eternal state of uh, the lake of fire for the unbeliever. Yes. But what's my point here with this? God's word will prevail and only those who take it seriously might be spared. There is coming a day. We don't know exactly when it is, but God has promised that there is coming a day of great and terrible wrath where he will pour out his wrath on the world. He calls it the day of great tribulation, not just tribulation in general, but great. There's that superlative uh, use there and it's coming out and he's actually uh, given it very interesting tie here where that period is for seven years. The great tribulation is a seven year period of wrath being poured out on the world. Now, those who believe God's word have a chance to be spared. Don't miss the connection here. You can be spared the coming day of God's wrath if you believe that it's coming and that he has made a way of escape. He has told believers that we are not appointed to wrath. First Thessalonians chapter five, uh, verse nine. And we look at that and he tells the church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter three, that because of their faithfulness, uh, they are going to be spared from the wrath that is coming. And so uh, we, we have to understand that if, if you believe God's word and you take it seriously, you can be spared. Joseph believes God's word. Uh, he believes it, it and he takes it seriously and his life is spared. The Egyptian lives are spared and others who believe uh, come and they can be spared as well. And so there's a great, great connection and application for us because we can take this and not only can our faith be strengthened by it, 
But this is a great way to have a gospel conversation with somebody and say, hey, let me tell you a little bit about the story of Joseph here. You realize that for those who take God seriously, they are the ones that can be spared. Well, God has told us what's coming for the future and the what's coming in the, the great and final day, the terrible day of the Lord is nothing that you want to be around for. But if you take him seriously, you can be spared. Let me tell you how. And then you proceed to tell them about Jesus Christ and the gospel. What a great message. That's encouraging to me. I don't know about you, uh, but it, it is for me. So that's where we're going to end uh, today. I think this might be my record longest uh, episode here. I hope you'll forgive me for that, but we'll pick it up in chapter 42 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.